Good morning, Narina. Good morning, Sakina, and happy Friday to everyone. I'm sure we're all very glad that it's Friday today. <laughs> if nothing else. Well, sure. Sona 2017 has come and gone, and uh, now time for the post-mortem, of course. What is your assessment of last night's events? Oh, I must say, Sakina, it feels like the morning after the night before. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel somewhat hungover after all the events last night. Um, but, you know, I think enough airtime has already been wasted on an analysis of the evidence of a nation that is in a very dishonorable state. What happened in and around Parliament last night really was a disgrace and an embarrassment, and I think, in my opinion, a slap in the face of every South African. So, so I'm rather going to move on to the contents of the speech itself. Um, I think much of it was as, expe- as expected. As we discussed yesterday morning, there was a lot of focus on the economy and land reform, and it was filled with populist rhetoric painting a very positive picture of the country. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that there are many people that necessarily agree with him. In, in fact, considering he was mostly addressing his own party, he received a very unenthusiastic response throughout the speech. Many MPs were seen to be dozing off or focusing on their cell phones, and, and there was some half-hearted applause throughout everything. But um, unfortunately, I think there's also things that we've heard of all before, you know, the mineral bowl, the land reform, national health insurance, free education, the list goes on. And, you know, I think if the scenes outside of Parliament is anything to go by, the people are getting restless and impatient. They want less talk, and they, and they want more more action, and I'm not convinced that uh, that we will necessarily see enough of that action in the year ahead. So, as expected, there was also much focus on the process of radical economic transformation. What did you make of the proposals that were put forward? Now, I've got the distinct sense that there's been a shift towards exactly the sort of policies which the EFF has been promoting. Um, and for me, this is an indication, or could be an indication, that the ANC is much more concerned about the loss in its support base to the EFF rather than to the official opposition, the DA. My biggest problem is that the focus of the proposal of, of these policies um, put forward is on the redistribution of existing economic value rather than on pro-growth policies, ones that will increase the size of the existing wealth pot. And this type of policy is, is, is a real one-hit wonder. You know, you can only do this once off, and if you haven't achieved growth through the redistribution, the next time around there will be nothing else to, redistrib- to, to distribute. Um, and, you know, stats such as 1.3% economic growth, which, by the way, is, is higher than most other expectations. Um, 30% unemployment, 17 million people on social grants. That's not really the sort of foundation on which you can place more burdens on the productive sector of our economy. And, and, and I think you know, 17 million people, more than 30% of the population, is, is not something to be proud of. It's something to be ashamed of. And, and I think Kevin Gordon will be in charge of implementing or rather trying to finance this transformation program, which is going to be a very tall order. And I think the budget speech is now even more crucial than ever before um, to see how, if at all, many of the promises and the intentions put on the table last night can actually be accommodated within the constraints of a severely challenging and, and tight budget. You know, I think most of us would agree that economic growth must be more inclusive to benefit all South Africans, but I think the problem is that there's very little consensus on how to achieve it. 
I think it's very clear that President Zuma believes that it can be achieved by tougher legislation, you know, re- regulations to almost force the private sector to comply with its vision. But this is very contradictory to a more general view from private sector that economic growth is the key to future wealth creation. So it's got to be more business-friendly climate that will see increased investment, and that's where you will get the, the, the necessary jobs. Um, so, yes, I think I still see that there's quite a bit of, of, um, of no joint forces, really, in terms of all of this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see that if we can just find um, a common goal once again, I think back of the 2010 World Cup when really the entire country was united behind such a common goal. And we have evidence of how effective we can be when everyone in the country pulls together in the same direction. But currently we just do not have such a common goal in this country. And then, Narina, um, the president also touched on the issue of uh, ownership of JSE-listed companies and uh, once again uh, reiterated, saying that only 10% of the top 100 companies listed on the JSE are directly owned by black South Africans. Is that a fair reflection, and what does this mean? How do we move forward? What needs to be done there? So I think, unfortunately, that's a very narrow view of those ownership statistics. And I, I have a problem with how this type of statistic is conveyed because you get the sense that if it's 10% owned directly by black South Africans, does that mean that the other 90% is directly owned by white South Africans? And, and that is a very likely interpretation that one can take away from that, but that's definitely not correct. So one really needs to break down that other 90% to get a balanced perspective of overall ownership. An independent research by the BEE Advisory Group, Alternative Prosperity, um, in which they assess the share of the economic interest in JSE companies, I think this gives a much more comprehensive breakdown. So yes, indeed, blacks on a direct basis do own 10% of JSE-listed companies, but through mandated investment. So these are things like the pension funds, unit trusts, and so on. They own another 13%, so a total of 23%. Interestingly enough, on that same measure, whites own a total of 22%. So that gives us a total of 45%. Um, but then foreigners own 59% of the JSE. That's up from 34% in, in 2011. And of course, part of that is because it includes those big international companies, but we're also happy about the fact that they came and listed on the JSE. But you know, companies like Anauza Bush and British American Tobacco, even BHP Billiton and so on, they have the majority of their shares listed and held in other markets by foreign investors. So not even available to South Africans to invest in. And that takes us up to 84% of the JSE. The remaining 16% they're still analyzing, but they, they reckon that it's likely to be largely reflective of the demographic of, of the country. And so unfortunately, when we hear a sort of a, a quote on statistics like, like the 10% quote, um, it leads to that mantra. I'm sure you've heard of lies, damn lies, and statistics. And I think just as much as we need to be more discerning about news stories to distinguish between fake news, alternative facts, and the truth, we need to use statistics responsibly and, and appropriately. So I'd, I'd like to finish up on a lighter note with a quote by Andrew Lang, the late Scottish poet and, poet and novelist, who said, politicians use statistics in the same way that a drunk uses lampposts for support rather than illumination. 